The scripture for this evening is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. The title of the message is Living in Light of the Second Coming. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 18. This will conclude our study of the book of 2 Peter. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your own steadfastness but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's say a brief word of prayer. Our God and Father, we come now to the Scripture, Your divinely inspired Word, and our desire is to hear You speak to us the message of these verses so that we understand and are changed. Please do it for Christ's sake. Amen. You can be seated. We have in our day and time a lot of environmentalists who are concerned with saving the planet. And I just want to tell you, we can't save the earth. Now I believe we should care for the creation God has given us. I believe we ought to be good stewards of God's earth. But no matter what we do, we cannot save this planet. We can recycle. We can find cleaner sources of energy. We can reduce waste as much as possible. We can plant trees till there's no place left to plant trees. But there is nothing we can do to save this planet. One of these days, the sun is going to rise on this earth for the last time. And when the end comes, it won't be global warming. Oh, there'll be some global warming, but it won't be because of pollution. The only global warming will be when the Son of God comes in His blazing glory and all of this creation melts before Him into nothingness. When he comes with all the hosts of heaven in great power and glory. And when this current heaven and earth 
are reduced to ashes before the Lord of glory, it will be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. Free from sin's corrupting and defiling influence. And for those who lived in this world for this world, for those who spent their lives pursuing the pleasures and possessions of this life, that's going to be a devastating day. It's going to be a day of judgment leading to eternal death. But for those who have lived this life in anticipation of the world to come, for those who have lived this life in light of the second coming of Jesus, that's going to be a glorious day. A day of salvation leading to eternal life. Those who have lived their lives denying that the Lord is going to come back in glory will be cast into the pits of hell. But those who have lived their life in anticipation in light of his return will be welcomed into heaven by the Lord Jesus himself. So the obvious question for you and I is this. What does it look like to live in light of the second coming? We want to be part of that group that's welcomed into the kingdom because we have lived in light of the second coming. We have lived in light in anticipation of his return. So what does that look like? Peter closes his letter by answering that question. Peter's letter was written because there were some in the church in Asia Minor who were teaching that there would be no second coming. Since there would be no second coming, there would be no day of judgment. Since there would be no day of judgment, you're free to live any way you want to without any fear of consequences. So they denied the second coming in order to justify their morally corrupt way of life. And Peter's writing to these who are genuine believers to say to them, don't believe their godless teachings and don't imitate their godless lives because Jesus is coming back. Instead, believers should live in light of the reality that Jesus is coming back. And he closes his letter by showing us what that looks like. There are three ways you and I should live in light of the second coming of Jesus. Here's the first one. Diligently pursue godliness in anticipation of that day. I want you to notice verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way he's referring to what he just said in verse 10 you'll notice it there the day of the Lord's going to come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar the elements will be destroyed with intense heat we talked about that this morning that roar is like the roaring of a fire when the son of God comes this current heaven and earth will be reduced to ashes melt at the intense glory of his coming. In verse 11, he says, because that's going to happen, because this current creation is going to be destroyed when he comes, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Holy conduct is conduct that reflects the character of God. Holy 
is the word used in the Bible to describe God, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All the earth is filled with his glory. So when we're called to live holy lives, have holy conduct, it means we should live lives that reflect the character of God. Or you may want to think of it like this, live like Jesus, right? Holy conduct and godliness. Godliness is devotion to God. In other words, the way we should live in light of the fact that Christ is coming and this whole earthly creation that's corrupted by sin is going to be destroyed. In light of that, we should live lives that reflect the character of God and demonstrate devotion to God in everything. That's how we should live. We pursue godliness. Look at what it says in verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Looking for and hastening. That's a phrase that looking for is repeated three times. Verse 12. Looking for the day of God. Verse 13. We are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 14, since you are looking for these things. In other words, we should be eagerly longing for and anticipating the return of Christ. We shouldn't be praying that it never comes. We should be praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We should long for and anticipate the day of the Lord, as we live godly and holy lives. 1 Corinthians 1.7 You are not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the idea, eagerly awaiting that time. We're living in godliness and holiness as we anticipate and long for the day Christ will return. We have the same attitude that the Apostle John had in Revelation 22 verse 20 when he said, Even so, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's the way we ought to feel. And because we desire that day to come, we live in a way that is in constant readiness. Notice verse 12. Longing for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat. This is the same thing he just referred to in verse 10. When the Lord comes, the heavens, the earth's atmosphere, and the elements, which is the earth itself, will melt with intense heat. They will be destroyed. Now watch verse 13. But according to his promise, we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth. This comes from Isaiah 65, 17 and 18. For behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come upon the heart, but be joyful and rejoice forever in what I create. And notice what it says at the end of verse 10. The earth, excuse me, um, verse, end of verse 13. He refers to the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. In the new heaven and the new earth, the righteousness of God will fill all of creation with His glory and beauty. In other words, everything 
that is in the new heaven and the new earth, absolutely every part of it will reflect the righteous character of God. It will reflect God's glory and God's beauty and God's goodness. Everything will reflect it perfectly. If you look around at this old world we live in, there's a lot of stuff in this world that doesn't reflect the righteousness and glory and beauty of God. A lot of things in this old world have been corrupted by sin. And they reflect the work of the enemy. They reflect the rebellion of sinful man. But when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, they're going to reflect the righteousness of God perfectly. And this is what Peter says. We ought to live holy and godly lives so we can eagerly anticipate the day when all of this creation that's corrupted is gone and we have a new heaven and a new earth. Now watch verse 14. Therefore, since you're looking for these things, since we're longing for Jesus to come and bring that new creation, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Be diligent, make every effort to be found by him in peace. In other words, when you stand before God, when you face the Lord Jesus, when he returns, you want him to find you having made peace with God. Romans 5, 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. In other words, when Christ comes on that day, you want to be one who has already made peace with God. What's the evidence of it? Look at it. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. The evidence that a person is right with God is spotless, which refers to Christian character, and blameless, which refers to Christian reputation. Your character and your reputation are what will reflect on that day that you have made peace with God. Let me give you a verse Philippians 2.15, Paul writes, so that you will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The idea of being spotless and blameless here is not sinless perfection, but it means on the day he comes, you ought to be like a white tablecloth that's covered in dirt but there's one clean spot right in the middle of it. You ought to stand out, right? You ought to be clean when compared to the rest of the world. You ought to be what he says in Philippians 2.15. You ought to be like a light shining in a dark world. There ought to be a noticeable difference in your character and your reputation. Are you with me? You want to be someone who on the day Christ returns, you want him to find you having made peace with God and that's evidenced by the fact that you live a life of Christian character and Christian reputation. That don't mean your reputation is necessarily good. That People may not like you, but you'll be known as a Christian. They may hate Christians, but your reputation will be this person's a believer. 
So what's he saying here? In verses 11 through 14, the idea is Jesus is coming. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. All this old heaven and earth is going to be gone. And so you want to be diligent to be found on that day, having lived a holy and godly life with Christian character and Christian reputation when you stand before the Lord Jesus. I want you to notice the second way that we live in light of the second coming. Understand God's patience means salvation for sinners. Verse 15, consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. Don't allow the passing of time to cause you to doubt or be discouraged. To make you wonder if the Lord's coming back. Think of this time, this what we feel like is a delay. Think of this time as an exercise of God's patience. He was allowing time for sinners to repent and believe. This is back to 2 Peter verse Chapter 3, verse 9, we looked at this morning. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all come to repentance. I'm not going to rehash that whole verse again. We covered it this morning. The sermon's online if you want to go re-listen to that again. But basically the idea is God is not going to send his son back until all of his sheep have entered the fold. He's allowing time for sinners to repent. So how do you and I live in anticipation of the second coming? How do we live in light of the second coming? One of those things is we understand that this time period between now and the coming of Jesus is an opportunity for sinners to be saved. Let me say it this way. For you and I, this is an opportunity for the proclamation of the gospel. This is time for us to get the word out I, I don't know about you but I got some family members that I sure would like to see come into the sheepfold I bet you do too I, I, I got some people from my past old friends who I sure would like to see get saved I bet you do too I bet you know some folks that you don't want Jesus to come back today because if he did, they'd be lost. This is your opportunity. This is your chance. This is why the Lord hasn't come back. He's waiting. This is the opportunity for you and I as individuals, as a church, to get the gospel out so that we can bring more sheep into the fold. We don't know who those sheep are. We don't know how many there's going to be. So we just keep telling everybody we have a chance to tell. Right? This is the opportunity. In other words, what we ought to be doing as we anticipate the return of Jesus is taking the gospel everywhere we can at every chance we get. This is the chance for folk to get saved. Once he returns, there's going to be no more chances. You with me? We live godly and holy lives 
as we eagerly look for that day and we thank God that He has given the time for people to come to know Christ. And we take advantage of that time by preaching the gospel, by talking to our neighbors and friends about Jesus and about their sin and about how that separates them from God and about how the forgiveness God has offered is in His Son as they would trust in Him and follow in Him and cling to Him alone for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life. The gospel's not complicated, but we have to share it. We have to take the gospel out and speak it. Faith comes by hearing. Well, if there's going to be some hearing, somebody's got to say something. Right? Faith comes by hearing the word, the message of Christ. How shall they hear unless there's a preacher? Paul says. And in that sense, all of us are preachers. All of us have the ability to talk to others about Jesus and say God created us to have a special relationship with Him, but mankind rebelled against God. We sinned against God, and that sin separated us from God, not only in this life, but eternally. There's nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves to God, but God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son to die on a cross, to pay the debt of our sin, lived a perfect life so we could get credit for His righteousness. And if we'll believe in Him, trust Him, follow Him, cling to Him alone, He'll save us and give us eternal life. Listen, you can tell folk that. You ain't got to be a Bible scholar. This is your opportunity. This time is your opportunity to take the gospel to sinners. There's a third way that we live in light of the second coming. First, we said, diligently pursue godliness and anticipation of that day. Second, understand God's patience means salvation for sinners. Third, don't be led astray by those who twist the scriptures. Notice verse 15. Consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you as also in all his letters speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. Here's what Peter said. God has given wisdom to the apostle Paul and he has written you letters. And in these letters, he spoke about these same things that I'm talking to you about. And he did. You remember in 1 Thessalonians, right? Paul says, we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who fall asleep. When the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise. He, he talks about the second coming, right? In multiple places, the apostle Paul writes about the return of Jesus, and Peter saying, look, the Apostle Paul wrote to you about this same stuff. He wrote to you saying the same things to you that I'm saying to you. If you want to look up one of those places, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 9, would just be one example of the writings of Paul. But why, why does Peter mention the writings of Paul? 
Well, he mentions them because the false teachers were distorting Paul's writings. Now, if you notice in verse 16, Peter acknowledges some of the things that Paul wrote are, he says, hard to understand. In other words, all of the teaching about the return of Christ is not first grade simple. It's not necessarily easy to interpret all that Paul was saying. It takes some thought and some spiritual discernment and understanding. But what these false teachers were doing is what the word used in, in the Bible I use is distort. How many of you know what a torture rack is? They used to put a body to torture people, they'd put their body on a rack, what they called the rack. You know what they did on the rack? They turned a crank and it would stretch. This word is used to speak of doing that, this word distort, to pull out of shape, to deform. I just use the word twist. They, it, it, it speaks of deforming it until it, it's not in the shape it's supposed to be in. That's what they do with the scripture. They take Paul's writings and they deform, they twist them until what? Until it supports what they believe, right? They, they misuse the scripture to make it say what they want it to say, right? And it's not hard to do that. It's not hard to do that. For instance, you may not know this, but there are a lot of people even today, people who call themselves Christians, but they don't believe in the second coming of Jesus. You know what they say? They say, it's intended of a spiritual kingdom. It's talking about God's rule in the hearts of people. It's not a physical kingdom. He's not coming back physically. It's spiritual. It's just the Lord reigning and ruling in your heart, so to speak. You may have heard the name Karl Barth. He was a theologian from years ago, and, and he was one of these who promoted this kind of tea. It's, it's, it's just spiritual. It's not literal. What are they doing? They're twisting it. There were others who would take Paul's writings when he writes, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. We're not saved by works of the law, we're saved by grace. Other people would say that means we can live any way we want to because we're not saved by our works, we're saved by grace. And the reason people distorted that, and that's the very reason James had to write James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. He wrote that because people were distorting what Paul was writing to say it was okay to live a godless life, to say that works had no part in the Christian life. Twisting the scripture. That's what these people were doing to support their godless lifestyle and their false beliefs, intentionally trying to justify their lives and teaching by twisting the scripture. And you'll notice he said in verse 16, they also do this with the rest of the scripture to their own destruction. You know what's interesting there? This is kind of a side note, but I think it's, in, it's worth pointing out. He said, Paul has written to you and they distort what he's written as they do the rest of the scripture. 
You see what he's doing? He's equating the writings of the Apostle Paul with the Scripture. That's a huge deal because this is long before the New Testament was codified. It shows us even before they had ever died, even before the Apostle died, the writings of the Apostle Paul were considered what? Scripture. And he said, they twist the other scripture too and it's going to lead to their destruction. They will not escape that. Now notice what he said. Verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your own steadfastness. Be on your guard. Guard against being led astray by the errors of unprincipled men. That word unprincipled means without law. Men who have no moral code, morally corrupt. These men, their errors their, their errors in teaching flow out of their lack of any moral law, any moral code, no moral values. They're morally corrupt. And so what they teach supports moral corruption. And he said, you don't want to be led astray by them. You've got to guard against that. You've got to be on your guard constantly against those errors. Because what happens if you are led astray? Look what he says lest you fall from your own steadfastness. Steadfastness pictures a stable position. And there are two ways of looking at this. If you're led astray by those who teach godlessness, by those who promote false teaching, if you buy into that poison and you're led astray, one thing that can happen is you can Go backward in your spiritual life. You can go from being a fairly stable, secure in the faith believer to you can lose ground in the spiritual life. I wonder if any of you have ever gone through a period of life where you lost ground in, in your spiritual condition. You didn't, you weren't lost, but you certainly were backslidden and you went backwards in your relationship with God. That's one thing that can happen. But another danger is for some people who were not genuinely born again to begin with, when they buy into this, they don't just backslide, they completely abandon the faith altogether. They walk away from Christianity. They do what we call commit apostasy. Think of it like this. You're in a canoe and you're paddling against the current upriver. That's like the Christian life. If you're living the Christian life in this world, you're paddling against the current because everybody else is going the other way. Okay? You're making progress because you're making an effort to move forward in the Christian life. If you buy into the lies and false teaching of these unprincipled men, men without any moral code, 
What you're doing, you stop paddling. You put the paddle in the boat and you just begin to drift with the current. And if you're truly a believer, at some point God's going to intervene in your life and discipline you and you're going to pick that paddle back up and you're going to get moving again. But for people who aren't truly born again, they have the danger. They just keep drifting until they go off the waterfall. You see my picture? Peter said, you got to guard against this false teaching because it can cause you to go backward in the Christian life. And if you're not truly born again, it can bring you to the place where you actually abandon the faith altogether and you are eternally condemned as a result. So rather than being led astray, what should believers do? Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow in grace. Continue growing. Always be growing. In the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word grace here refers primarily to Christian character. And knowledge refers to a knowledge of the truth. Why is it important to grow in knowledge? In the knowledge of the truth. What's going to keep you from believing a lie? Knowing the truth. Why do you need to grow in the knowledge of the truth to keep you from believing a lie? Why do people get deceived so easily? Because they're ignorant of the scripture. I don't mean they're stupid. I mean they're ignorant. They lack the knowledge of the scripture. And too many people don't take that seriously. They think, well, I'm saved, that's good enough. No. No, we need to pursue growth. We need to develop discernment so we know the truth from a lie. So we need to continue to grow the way we guard against falling victim to these false teachers is to continue to make progress. Listen, if you're paddling that canoe against the current in the river, the best thing to do to keep from going backward is what? Never stop paddling. Never put that paddle down. Never stop making progress. How do you keep from going backward? Never stop moving forward. Isn't that common sense? Most of you are familiar with the phrase separation of church and state, right? That's a phrase coined by Thomas Jefferson in the 1600s. There are, in our society and government, there is what you might call an anti-religious establishment. And what they have done, they take this phrase from Thomas Jefferson and they use it to say that religion has no place in the public square. Or they use it to try to say that religion is not allowed to benefit from the government because we're supposed to be separate. We're not supposed to have any engagement in public square because separation of church and state. You know what they've done? They've taken what Thomas Jefferson said and twisted it. That's not at all what Thomas Jefferson meant when he wrote it. By the way, separation of church and state is in the writings of Thomas Jefferson, not the Constitution. 
it never appears anywhere in the Constitution. The only thing in the Constitution about religion is that the government shall make no law concerning the practice of religion. That's what Thomas Jefferson meant when he said the separation of church and state. He said the government needs to stay out of the church. He's not saying the church has no place in the public square. He's not saying the church can't benefit in any way from, from government. He's saying the government has no business being in the religious business. But they twist it. Why? To support their own agenda. That's exactly what these false teachers were doing in the writings of Paul and other scriptures. They use them to support their own twisted agenda. I hope by now you can see. You're beginning to get a picture of what it looks like to live in light of the Lord's return. I want to say it like this. Don't be led astray by those who twist the scripture. But diligently pursue godliness in anticipation of the second coming and understand God's patience means salvation for sinners. I want to say that again. Don't be led astray by those who twist the scripture, but diligently pursue godliness in anticipation of the second coming and understand that God's patience means salvation for sinners. Let me say it in a way that you might can remember it. Maybe it'll stick in your head. Take this thought with you. How, do you. how can you be ready for the second coming? Be ready for the second coming by pursuing godly lives and ignoring godless lips. Pursue godly lives and don't pay attention to folks who speak godless theology, who twist the scripture, who teach falsehood. If you'll stay away from what's trying to drag you backwards and keep moving forward, you'll be ready when the day comes. Be ready for the second coming by pursuing godless lives, pursuing godly lives and ignoring godless lips. I wonder if you remember the words to this old hymn. Jesus is coming to earth again. What if it were today? Coming in power and love to reign. What if it were today? Coming to claim his chosen bride, all the redeemed and purified over this whole earth scattered wide. What if it were today? Satan's dominion will then be o'er. Oh, that it were today. Sorrow and sighing shall be no more. Oh, that it were today. Then shall the dead in Christ arise, caught up to meet Him in the skies. When shall these glories meet our eyes? What if it were today? Faithful and true, would He find us here if He should come today? Watching in gladness and not in fear if he should come today. Signs of his coming multiply. Morning light breaks in eastern sky. Watch for the time is drawing nigh. What if it were today? You know something we may want to do? You may want to write that on a post-it note. 
what if it were today, and stick it on your bathroom mirror. So every day, when you turn on the light in the bathroom and you look in that mirror, the first thing you see is, what if it were today? To remind you, are you ready? Are you ready? What if it were today, are you ready? Well, we need constant reminders that he's coming. What if it were today? Because despite what the deniers and mockers say, the Lord of all creation is coming in a display of power and glory unlike anything this world has ever seen. Every square inch of this sin-corrupted world will melt before him like styrofoam in a bonfire. Every mountain, every hill, every tree, every blade of grass, every grain of sand will be consumed by the blazing glory of the Son of God. And the godless, those who have lived for this world, will watch in horror as all they have loved goes up in smoke and they'll be helpless to do anything but wait until they're cast into hell. Oh, but for those who have lived godly lives, looking for and longing for the return of Jesus, we'll be caught up out of this condemned world to be with our Lord Jesus. And we'll finally see the new heaven and the new earth. Then the gates of that new Jerusalem are going to swing open to us where our Lord Jesus will become for us a source of never-ending joy and satisfaction and pleasure and fulfillment. What if it were today? Are you ready? Let's pray.